on today's show, Dr. Dina Hinshaw walks back the start date for the removal of testing, tracing, and isolating in Alberta. The situation in Afghanistan continues to go from bad to worse. And it's Friday the 13th. Are you superstitious? We'll talk with somebody who knows all about superstitions. We're just waiting for Dr. Dina Hinshaw and Education Minister Adriana Lagrange to start their news conference where we're going to get a little more clarity around exactly what's going to be happening in the province of Alberta in the coming weeks. Of course, kids head back to school in, I think it's about three weeks, something like that. Uh, the Thursday before Labor Day, I believe, is when the first day of whatever classes look like at the beginning, and then they get going in earnest after Labor Day. Uh, So we've got a few weeks yet, and um, you've heard school boards across the province and the teachers' union all clamoring to say, we need some guidance, we need some understanding as to what it's going to look like when we head back. You know, is there going to be certain protocols in place? Are kids going to have to wear masks in the hallways, in classroom? You know, all, all this sort of stuff. So we're, we're waiting to see exactly what that is. And that's what the education minister will provide this morning for sure. And then the other story that came to light last night was um, there was an emergency meeting held by the UCP cabinet yesterday where one of the topics that they discussed was the whole removal of the test, trace, and isolate component of our pandemic response, which was supposed to go away uh, on Monday. Uh, And a lot of people, as you know, were very, very concerned by this, um, including the federal health minister, um, other medical officers of health from across the uh, country. Um, It it made news in the United States. It was a pretty big deal because, as Jason Kenney said, somebody has to be first, and Alberta was going to be first. So um, that's what the situation was. But now there's reports that it's going to be pushed back. Uh, The news conference just getting underway. Uh, Let's listen to Dr. Dina Hinshaw. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for coming today. The last time I stood in front of you, I shared with you the plan to shift towards a more sustainable approach to COVID-19, where we could use an enhanced version of the public health systems that manage other respiratory viruses to also manage COVID. At that time, I promised you that we would closely monitor COVID-19 for a two-week period and adapt as needed before the remaining changes came into effect on August 16th. Throughout COVID-19, I have been committed to following the data and evidence, and my team has been nimble, adjusting our recommendations as needed when the facts have supported it. Since I made my previous recommendations, I have been watching local and international data closely, and two items have emerged that have led me to recommend that we adjust our approach and defer the changes originally scheduled for August 16th. First, current non-ICU hospitalizations in our province are trending somewhat higher than we anticipated. Our initial modeling showed that at this time we would expect to have about 90 total cases in hospital. Compared to 146 cases in hospital today, this is an increase of 62% over our projections. To be clear, there is no issue with hospital capacity. Anyone who needs treatment will be able to get it, either for a COVID-related illness or for an unrelated issue. However, it is important to take some additional time to monitor the situation. Second, we are closely watching the emerging evidence from the United States about pediatric cases with the Delta variant. The experience in the U.S. has been different 
from the information from the United Kingdom, which we used to inform our original decision. In the UK, the Delta variant did not cause a different experience in children than previous COVID waves. Children under 15 remained the lowest risk of severe outcomes from infection. In the US, unfortunately, hospitalizations in children have started to rise, most significantly in states with lower overall immunization rates. It seems most likely that the reason for the difference between these two settings is the level of adult immunization which is protective for children via reduced household and other community transmission. In the UK, almost 75% of adults have received two doses of vaccine, while in Florida, one of the states where high hospitalizations have been reported in children, only 60% of adults have been fully vaccinated. In Alberta, at just over 67% of the eligible population fully immunized, we are in the middle of these two. Given this emerging evidence, I want to further monitor these trends. I do not share this information to cause alarm. To date, we have not seen a similar rise in severe cases in youth here in Alberta. Since July 1st, we have only had seven cases in hospital under the age of 18. However, it is important to monitor our trends in a consistent way and to continue to require cases to isolate while we do so. Based on these developing factors, I have recommended that we pause the next step in our transition for a period of six weeks until September 27th. Not only does this allow us to do further monitoring, it also gives us more time to increase vaccination levels, which is the number one most important thing adults and older children can do to protect themselves and younger children and others around them. If monitoring confirms our original expectations that a rise in cases will not lead to high levels of hospitalizations, and we do not see evidence of increased risk for severe disease for children, we will proceed with implementing this next set of changes after September 27th. However, this means for the time being, provincial masking orders for transit, school buses, taxis and ride shares remain in effect. Isolation will continue to be legally required for those with core COVID-19 symptoms and those who test positive for COVID-19. And symptomatic testing will continue to be available at assessment centers by self-referral. I want to be clear that it is still important for us to continue to work towards a sustainable approach to managing COVID-19 that considers the harms of interventions as well as the direct harms from COVID-19. This is why the changes related to contact tracing that came into effect July 29th remain in effect. We are not going backwards. We are pausing to monitor and assess before taking a next step forward. Having said that, I am sorry that the way that I have communicated about these changes and the rapid pace of them has caused distress. My team is working to summarize the evidence that has informed my belief that this is the best way forward for the health of Albertans, and I am committed to both providing you with that evidence and listening to your perspectives. The other information I am here to share today is about plans for returning to school. I know that we all care deeply about our children and their safety and well-being, and there are a variety of perspectives on how to best balance all the risks they face. With that in mind, the guidance we are releasing today considers the risks of COVID-19, 
as well as the risks of public health measures on children's overall health and well-being. It is important that we look at all factors that support physical, mental and emotional health to make sure that precautions are proportionate to overall risk level. It is in this broader context that our provincial guidance has been crafted. We know that the public health measures that were necessary last year to control COVID-19, including the temporary closure of schools to in-person learning, quarantine of entire classes, and cancelling extracurricular events, have been associated with a deterioration in the mental health of children and youth. Many children have reported increased feelings of social isolation, depression, and anxiety. It is important to keep the negative impacts of these measures in mind, particularly when looking at a population that is at lower risk of severe outcomes from COVID-19. Looking at our data right here in Alberta, children have had very low rates of severe illness compared with other health risks. For example, last year in 2020, four times more school-aged children were admitted to hospital for fall-related injuries and almost eight times as many were admitted to hospital for anxiety disorders than for COVID-19. Overall, less than half of 1% of all diagnosed COVID cases in school-aged children have required hospital care. And thankfully, there have been no COVID-related deaths in children. I recognize that for those families who had a child in hospital, the fact that this was rare did not take away that challenge for them. I would not wish that experience on families, and yet I also know that we cannot prevent every health risk for our children. In fact, sometimes when we take action to avoid one risk, we increase risk in other areas. We have worked closely with Alberta Education and Alberta Health Services to develop guidance to prevent and manage all respiratory illnesses in schools. This guidance includes expectations around good public health practices such as staying home when sick and regular hand hygiene and cleaning. Masking will not be universally required in schools across the province, but may be recommended as one of several temporary interventions for respiratory outbreaks in general. Throughout the coming school year, school officials can also make decisions that are right for them and their communities. This includes the ability to consider putting health measures in place for their schools that may exceed those put in place across the province in response to particular needs and contexts in their areas. It is also important for families to consider their individual risks and contexts and make decisions that are best for them, such as for those who may choose to continue to wear masks. In return, schools and school authorities are expected to support these personal choices wherever possible. The best choice we can make to protect ourselves and our children is to be fully immunized. We have a strong ally on our side with vaccines. Having as many people immunized as possible will protect both those who have received their vaccine as well as those who are not yet able to get one. This is why before the school year begins, I am asking all eligible Albertans to get vaccinated against COVID-19 as soon as possible. The school year begins for most students in about three weeks, and it takes about two weeks to develop the highest protection after getting your second dose. Although it is best to get a vaccine before school starts, for those who aren't able to do so, we will also offer COVID-19 vaccines in schools. 
Immunizations will be available through temporary clinics in schools for students in grades 7 to 12, as well as teachers and staff starting on September 7th. Right now, only about half of youth 12 to 17 are fully vaccinated. Providing vaccines through school ensures vaccines will be accessible to all eligible school-aged Albertans in the province. By continuing to get fully vaccinated, following recommended guidance, and managing outbreaks, together we can support children safely returning to school this fall. We have been through a lot in the past year and a half, and our kids' lives in particular have been profoundly changed. COVID has taken a lot from them by the impacts of the measures that we have needed to use to protect our communities. However, vaccines give us the chance to change that. I wish everyone a healthy return to... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. School. Right now that we're going to address another major story, uh, this one is uh, just taking off like wildfire. It's it's really quite alarming what's going on, as a matter of fact. Um, and for those of you following such things, you know the situation in Afghanistan has become, well, a catastrophe at this point. The U.S., of course, is leaving. That's been announced. And the Taliban is rapidly rushing back in and reclaiming huge swaths of territory. Um, we've talked about the efforts to save Canadian interpreters and or interpreters that worked with Canadian forces and other support staff uh, in huge evacuation operations. Well, now the U.S., the U.K., and Canada have all announced plans to send in troops and airlift out all of their nationals, get them out of the country. It's all very reminiscent of the fall of Saigon in the final days of the Vietnam War, just the complete collapse and um, the... I guess you would call them the enemy forces or the opposition forces rushing right back in. Uh, it's not a good look for the government of, day, of the day by any means. So let's get the specifics on this story and just how it all came about and where we are now and where we might go. Um, we are going to be chatting with uh, Brahma Chalani, who is a geostrategist and author of nine books, including the award-winning Water, Asia's New Battleground. Uh, Brahma, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. So let's just go back to the beginning here. Um, uh, Donald Trump first put this in place, and um, but ultimately, ultimately, Joe Biden is going to be the one to wear this. He made the final decision. He set the timeline against a lot of warnings from people who knew better, right? Precisely. His top uh, military generals advised him that any hurried exit would lead to a catastrophe. And what they predicted is what's unfolding now is seeing a security and humanitarian nightmare develop in Afghanistan. And this situation could have been averted had the conditions on the ground been the principal factor in the presidential decision. The rapid pullout of forces created the vacuum for the Taliban to make swift advances on the ground 
What was the advice that we were hearing from generals, from other people who've studied this and said, listen, if you just go and yank everybody out immediately, this is what's going to happen. And now we see it is. What was the advice? What was the other plan that was presented to say this is a better way of doing it? Well, to take a step back, by the time Biden took office, there were only 2,500 U.S. soldiers remaining in Afghanistan. So that's a very small force that remained in Afghanistan. And that small military footprint could have been sustained in Afghanistan for a much longer period, or at least um, a smaller residual force could have been kept in Afghanistan. The reason why that was important is the Afghan military depended heavily on American and Western logistical support, including close air support. The drones on on the battlefield were so important for situational awareness. The military contractors from the West, they, they had a critical role in maintenance, in logistics, and um, in spare parts. All those contractors have left, the Western forces have left, leaving the Afghan forces high and dry. They don't have the support infrastructure anymore. And that's the reason why we're seeing the Afghan forces retreat from city after city while the Taliban are taking these cities without a fight. There's been no real fighting in most places. You know, wasn't the whole point to go over there, stabilize things and strengthen the Afghan government and their own defense forces so that this wouldn't happen? So can we look at the last 20 years as anything other than an abject failure that was erased within a matter of days? It's a good question. The Afghan forces should have been trained in a way to independently manage the war. For the last um, many years, ever since the U.S. combat role ended at the end of 2014, the Afghans were in the front lines. They were fighting and dying for the country. The Americans only suffered 99 fatalities in this period since end of 2014, while the Afghans lost tens of thousands of their soldiers in, in actual fighting. But the Afghan military remained highly reliant on U.S. and Western support. That was a mistake. The military should have been made independent of Western support. And also one other point that we have to keep in mind is that we all talk about a 20-year American war in Afghanistan. But the American intervention in Afghanistan did not begin in, 20, in 2001 after the terrorist attacks in the U.S., it started much earlier in the aftermath of the direct Soviet military intervention in Afghanistan from late 1979. In the 1980s, the U.S. was involved in a CIA-led covert war in Afghanistan, the largest ever in CIA's history. So we're looking at a long period of American involvement in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and yet President Biden suddenly and abruptly decided to pull out all forces, creating a vacuum that the Taliban are now exploiting. And look at look at the irony. There were just 2,500 American troops there. 
uh, that were pulled back. And now Biden is sending 3,000 <laughs> American troops back to merely evacuate American citizens. There couldn't be a more jarring paradox than that. No, you're absolutely right. And they're not alone. The UK now doing it, Canada doing it. And and as I said, you know, one of the most striking images from the Vietnam War was the fall of Saigon and the air evacuations and all the rest of that stuff. And uh, no president wants that on their watch. And we are going to see it in the coming days in Kabul. Uh, Kabul may be a more difficult thing for Taliban to take because the Afghan military has retreated and is seeking to define its defenses. Uh, and the defense line is very clear that they are not going to let the Taliban walk into Kabul. There's going to be heavy fighting, unlike in, in elsewhere. Uh, there'll be heavy fighting if the Taliban tries to seize Kabul. So I expect the Afghan military to, to uh, defend uh, Kabul. And um, there might be a lot of uh, bloodletting uh, and, and there might be a civil war uh, in Afghanistan like we saw in the 1990s. So I don't think uh, the rapid uh, advances of the Taliban that we have seen in the West, South and the North are going to be replicated in the central part of Afghanistan where Kabul is located Okay, so sort of a last end. Okay, a couple more things before I let you go. Uh, we'll talk about the future in a second, but the present. Where has the Taliban been? This is all Pakistan, right? They have flooded Afghanistan with, with fighters for the Taliban, correct? Precisely, and I think, and, and this is, you know, well known in counterinsurgency literature, that when proxies enjoy transboundary support, transboundary sanctuaries, it's difficult to defeat them. The Taliban were created and reared by Pakistan. They remain Pakistan's proxies. They enjoy sanctuaries in Pakistan. The, the, the top Taliban leadership remains based in Pakistan. And as the American general commanding forces in Afghanistan, John Nicholson said, it's very difficult to succeed on the battlefield when your enemy enjoys external support and safe haven. In fact, it was difficult for the, for the US forces to see the enemy because the enemy was beyond their reach across the border. And this begs the question as to why the Americans fought the war on one side of the Afghan-Pakistan border. The real war should have been fought in Pakistan. And, and yet, what we have seen is that U.S. policy over the years has mollycoddled Pakistan, mm -hmm. while while countless numbers of Afghans have been killed in continuing conflict since since the Soviet intervention in 1979. So we have had two generations of Afghans, um, you know, uh, where we, who, who have been in a war-torn country. They've seen their country unravel. Uh, it's a war-ravaged country, and unfortunately, uh, things are not going to calm anytime soon. So I guess the question is, um, it, it looks by you know any reasonable expectation, the Taliban will once again be in full control of Afghanistan very, very soon. Does that mean we go back to mid-1990s Afghanistan, where we know al-Qaeda was operating? We know ISIS is now in the area. Do we see a return 
to global terror being fostered, harbored, and launched out of Afghanistan just like we did 25 years ago? It's a great question, and I would answer by saying that the American retreat from Afghanistan carries far greater international implications than the American defeat in Vietnam, because the American retreat from Afghanistan is going to embolden jihadists across the world. Right, it's seen it'll as a deliver the rebirth. It'll deliver the rebirth of global terror, and and the Taliban is very much part of the global jihadist movement. In fact, as the UN Security Council report recently pointed out, that Taliban is still very much closely aligned with Al-Qaeda. So it's very likely that Afghanistan will become once again a haven for transnational terrorists. And then do we once again back, get back into the situation 20 years from now where allied forces go back into Afghanistan? Are we locked into this kind of a cycle of take over the country, surrender the country, terrorism blooms and we go back in? Or is, is it just going to continue like this? We, we saw that in Syria, Iraq. Yep. The Americans um, intervened and they withdrew. And when ISIS, the Islamic State, declared a caliphate, caliphate in Syria and Iraq, the Americans had to re-intervene. So similarly, the rise of a, of a reconstituted Taliban emirate in Afghanistan will eventually lead to Western military re-intervention in Afghanistan. And the re-intervention will be costlier than had the U.S. maintained a small residual force in Afghanistan. Yeah, it is just a horrible situation. Thank you so much for your time this morning, giving us a little background and insight. I appreciate it very much, Brahma. Thank you. That is Brahma Chalani, who is a geostrategist and author of nine books, including the award-winning Water, Asia's New Battleground. And I think we touched on most of the highlights there in terms of what's going on in Afghanistan. This Friday the 13th, I'm not a superstitious person, but I know some people are, and I'm just wondering why. How do these superstitions even come around? How do we end up in a position where Friday the 13th takes on significance and, you know, it can be a very scary day for some people and and all the rest of it. So let's get some details around superstitions, where they come from, and if there's really anything we need to be thinking about as far as they go. We'll chat with Dr. Peter Dendel, who is a professor of English at Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania State University. He has written extensively on superstitions. Um, doctor, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you very much. Even though it's Friday the 13th, I guess I should be having a terrible day, right? Well, to go the day's not over yet. <laughs> Fair enough. Good point. Yeah. Where where did where like let's just deal with this one in particular, Friday the 13th. Where did this become a superstitious day? When did it become something we need to be wary of? So the thing is is when you try to track down the origins for a lot of these, you're going to find a lot of conflicting accounts. So I think probably the biggest answer is we're not sure. Nobody's really sure. But there's lots of uh, particular theories, like going back to the Templar Knights of the Middle Ages, uh, etc. Um, I, I think one thing that has the strongest support for it is that the number 12 has always been such a, a magical number in many cultures, um, Christian, Nordic, etc., that the 13th person at the table or the 13th yes. is, is uh, you know, breaks that perfection. 
yeah, I mean, 13 in its own right is seen as unlucky. So you combine it with Friday and, and uh, we end up with Friday the 13th, which is a scary day. Um, when we talk about these superstitions, a lot of people just don't care. Obviously, they don't mean anything to them. But a lot of people, you know, they don't live their lives by them by any means, but they have an impact on them. Why is that? Is it just something that you're you're subjected to? Or why do some people adhere to these much more strongly than others? Well, I think a lot of interesting work in psychology has been done on this recently. And it looks like what they're finding is that people need a sense of control over their lives. Right. Superstitions tend to hover particularly around high-stress professions or high-risk, high-stakes things, like before an exam or before the big ball game. Um, And superstitions can help influence your team. You're doing your part magically from a distance. Or it can help you focus your attention. Oh, my God, I would never go to the game without my lucky socks. Um, And so you say that you're not superstitious. You say most people aren't. I I, I wonder. You you could be right, but I wonder. Uh, I think we all have little rituals. Yes, yeah. Fair enough. And you mentioned the sports ones, and I'm I'm right there. You know, when I was playing hockey, if we were on a good run, I wouldn't wash my T-shirt. Uh, I do certain things when I'm going to watch my favorite team play a game that night. You're absolutely right. And you might say, you know, would you really believe that? Aren't you a rational person? And I might say, no, of course, I don't really believe right. it. But, but, but why risk it? <laughs> why risk it this time? <laughs> That's exactly what it is. That is exactly what it is. You hit the nail on the head. Um, I... I've also read some science saying that, you know, if you get really wrapped up, especially around the bad luck ones, like, um, you know, seeing a black cat or Friday the 13th or whatever, you can almost manifest a bad day for yourself by putting so much stock into the superstition. Is that true? Oh, I have no problem believing that. People are are eminently capable of creating bad days for themselves (laughs) if they're set to it. So, I mean, where do do you, I mean... uh, to me, and I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems all the superstitions that we talk about, be it black cats, walking under ladders, broken mirrors, Friday the 13th, all, they all seem to go back a long, long way. Are we still developing new superstitions like that, or is this something that came out of way back when kind of thing? So I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I say we've invented all sorts of new superstitions, even though not all people would be comfortable using that word. Uh, I would say belief in aliens, belief in ghosts, astrology, palm reading. For many people, these are important emotional parts of their lives that give them great meaning and that give them direction. Right. So the thing about the word superstition is that it's always been used to sort of distinguish inside group from outside group. It's often used pejoratively. Ours is the true belief set. Oh, that nonsense they're doing over there is just superstition. Okay. Kind of like conspiracy theory. Noticed- Exactly, exactly. But there's also a positive sense. I was just looking. Apparently, like 10 to 20% of young people proudly self-identify as superstitious. And I know that some people give some links to family. Um, yes. That like, oh, yeah, I'm very superstitious. Oh, yeah, my grandma taught me this. And, oh, in our house, we're all superstitious. And you can see that it, that it gives them a sense of heritage and connection with the past. And perhaps also a slight connection with a, a little magical world behind the, the mundane world. Yeah, and it's interesting. It's fun. It can be fun, right? It can be entertaining. It can be it can be exciting, and we're all looking for that. Exactly. It's kind of like a, a non-threatening belief system that doesn't really conflict with a person's main religion or with their uh, rationality in day-to-day life. Although I did just notice that Vancouver, about five, six years ago, is cracking down. It's not allowing any new developers 
to to make buildings um, without the fourth and thirteenth floor. Oh, really? Hey, because I mean that's one of the most ridiculous things we've submitted to as a, as a society is we don't put thirteenth floors in buildings, even though it is the thirteenth floor. Vancouver's saying enough with the nonsense. Hey, enough of the nonsense. <laughs> Good. It gave two. Con- yeah, it gave two conflicting reasons to to, to to my mind anyway. One was. Look, these are cultural differences, yeah. just even the playing field. Um, but then they also give a practical one, which is this is no good for paramedics and firefighters scrambling around trying to find <clears throat> rooms and, and floors. It makes perfect sense. I mean, and it's, <laughs> and it's as we said, all nonsense too. Uh, really interesting, Doc. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. That is Dr. Peter Dendel, who is a professor of English at Pennsylvania State University, telling us a bit of the background around superstitions. And yeah, I was doing some reading this morning, and they say, if you're somebody who really buys into the Friday the 13th myth or mystique or superstition, whatever you want to call it, and you really think that Friday the 13th is a somehow special day that's going to you know, be threatening to you, you will manifest that. Maybe you'll just even notice things going slightly awry for you that on another day wouldn't be a problem, but you think, oh, oh, Friday the 13th, all this is happening to me. It's so bad. So depending on how much you buy into some of these things um, is how much of an impact it may have on your life. In reality, the day has no impact on your life. And I think we all know that. But, you know, as he said, conspiracy theories can be great fun. They can be entertaining. They can be interesting, right? And if he's saying that this is kind of along the same lines, sure, it is interesting. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.